Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome in once again to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Duck. I am Doug Scott, joined as always by QB11. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing good, Doug. It's weird. It's been 16 days. Lo- yeah, the longest drought we've ever had between recording episodes. Um, and first of all, we'd like to apologize to everybody for that. But also, it was somewhat intentional. Um, Doug, Doug was on vacation I've been super slammed. I know Justin's been really busy dealing with stuff. Um, new year, new challenges. Um, but we're we're really, really happy to be back. We don't plan to have any more hiatuses like that. Uh, and frankly, there was not a lot of news in that period of time. I mean, there's going to be enough for us to discuss today, but not, not the volume of news uh, that we were accustomed to over the 18 or 20 weeks prior, right? And so... Yeah. Uh, Plenty to talk about today, though, so uh, let's get into it. Yeah, I feel a little bad, you know, for two reasons. One, I mean, a lot of the listeners uh, were pinging us on on Twitter, you know, when's the next episode, when's the next episode, which obviously makes you feel, um, you know, really excited to have such, you know, such a listener base that is, um, you know, wanting to hear more from you. So it's it's a bit humbling. But I also feel bad because I hauled all of my recording equipment to Hawaii and back expecting to record while we're there, and, and we really didn't, and it was your fault. Wait, what? You let me down. Yeah, we were. I was ready to record multiple times, and you blew me off. So you know, I, I, the listeners listeners need to know the reason they didn't get an episode is not me and not my okay. vacation. Well, since we're airing it out, let's talk about then. Last time we were supposed to record, when you just randomly took a nap and left J Hop and I sitting there holding our dicks. Wait, crazy. You showed up. Yeah, I uh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, yeah, that was unfortunate. That was an unfortunate turn of events for sure, and and I'm sure there was a good reason why I needed a nap. I don't know, but uh, okay, yeah, okay. Um, well, I'll take that one. You could take the one before, and and yeah. uh, we'll I will apologize. Oh, Doug, just maybe it's maybe it's you just being so youthful and going out and partying when you're in Hawaii, and we're just back well, here in Rome, you know, slaving away trying to make ends meet and trying to put a deal together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. No, I appreciate, you know, and as long as the listeners know, like, I, you know, I didn't go to Hawaii on, on all the profits of the show. So those are intact uh, in the vault still. Yeah. Uh, all all $22.57. Yep. And you know what? We're going to save it and we're going to keep saving. And someday we're going to look down and it's going to be $23.57. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, regardless, it's great to be back, and this is also Andrew. It's worth mentioning. This is episode number fifty-five-zero of uh, since we started this whole thing uh, back in May. So that's a kind of a cool milestone. Obviously, the first of you know, hopefully we'll hit a hundred and and then one fifty. And I don't know who the hell, who the hell knows how long we'll be doing this, but fifty episodes in, and I, I'm really still happy to be here, still excited to be working with you on this. So it's been a great first fifty for me. 
I mean, Doug, at your advanced age, we 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 got we got to be able to pump out at least a thousand episodes, right? Like you're gonna make it for a thousand. I, I can do it. I'll hold on. This will be. This will give me reason, right? Like this will give me that reason to, to, to cling to life, right? Okay, we're cl- we're at nine hundred eighty-seven. I can't go yet. That just reminds me of that that uh, scene in Talladega Nights when Rookie Bobby goes like, "Oh, he's like, hell with with my income and advances in in modern technology, it's not crazy to think that I could live to be a hundred, hundred fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I might need a lot of technology to get to that, but uh, well, that'll be a good problem to have. Uh, all like, all the, the fun stuff aside, it's great to be back, and I guess we can dive into this. Um, you know, the big news obviously coming out today, but first reported by Pete Thamel, uh, and then confirmed by James Creppy as well as many others, is that Oregon has made a hire of a new coach. The position wasn't named. Um, I We all assume, obviously, it's the, the replacement for uh, departed coach, uh, you know, Powledge, and that that this person will be the safeties coach, maybe a Cody C title, and it's Chris Hampton coming over from uh, Tulane, where he was the defensive coordinator the last two years. Has a long history before that, uh, most of it at Tulane, but I think he made one or two stops elsewhere as a defensive backs uh, safeties coach as well. So he obviously fits the positional need. Uh, what can you tell us about Chris Hampton? Not a lot, um, like many of you. Um, we, we just found out about this as well. And so not a, not a ton, um, to go off of, but one thing that, that stands out is that we're, you have a guy that's taking kind of a reduction in role responsibility to come to Oregon. Um, now obviously he's also in the, in the process moving up from group five to power five, uh, and going to a place where, Frankly, as you could see by looking at this last year, uh, staffers are very likely to get poached for um, big, big time Power Five opportunities. Obviously, with Palage going to Baylor and uh, Dillingham going to ASU as the head coach. So, if you're a if you're a coordinator at a G five in a position to come accept a role at Oregon and really kind of give add some nitrous to your career, uh, I think you take that. And so, yeah, uh, two years of high level coordinator experience. I mean, shoot under his tutelage they they underwent one of the largest um rebuilds in the history of college football i mean they flipped a 2 and 10 team to a 12 and 2 team in one year um so pretty nuts D- defensively uh this year they they finished at 28th and f plus uh in 2021 um they finished uh um, they were in the 90s yeah, double checking that right now. I apologize. I should have had this already pulled up. They, they finished also- ninety-eight. Yeah, so they they jumped seventy spots in one year, um, from from his first year to his second year. I think that really says a lot. And it was funny because I believe if we go back in the archives, there was a point early in the season when we were talking about, um. Tulane beating Kansas State, and we'd kind of talked about this like Tulane defense is very, very good. Uh, obviously, they've got some pretty good players for that level as well, but to get wins against Kansas State and to stop that prolific offense and to do enough containing uh, the USC offense, again, they, they really moved the ball and scored pretty effectively, uh, but to do enough and to create enough stops to give their offense the opportunity to win that game, and they did end up pulling it out. I think speaks very highly of his ability as a coach. So um, schematically, they ran. I was looking at some splits here just a minute ago for them. 
they they ran almost I mean they they ran eighty eight percent of their defensive plays at a nickel. Uh, again, he's not coming to Oregon to be the defensive coordinator, but just uh, kind of taking a look at some of some of their film here right now. And uh, they they run a base three man front, but they're very versatile, uh, multiple in the same way that Oregon is. They stem in and out of fronts a lot. So just ideologically, this seems like a really good fit, uh, and it seems like a guy that will will blend well with Landing and Tosh. Yeah, and you have to like. I mean, obviously, people are going to point to the to the USC. Oh, USC put five hundred, you know, five hundred something yards on them and forty something points. It's like, yeah, well, USC is significant. Is playing a different level of football than Tulane, right? I mean, the talent disparity is is significant. And also, USC had one of the best offenses in the country this year. So, uh, I think you have to look at you know when you're comparing apples to apples, and you look at what they did in their schedule uh, throughout their season against similarly talented teams. And I think there's a lot to like about. You know what they're doing. I mean, holding Kansas State to ten points. You know, uh, holding Houston to twenty-four points, nine points for East Carolina. Uh, you know, Memphis to twenty-eight, holding Tulsa to, to thirteen. I, I mean, holding SMU to twenty-four, holding Cincinnati to twenty-four, holding UCF to twenty-eight. Like that's a good defense. And and obviously he was a defensive coordinator overseeing that, and before that the the defensive backs coach. So I think there's a lot to like there. You know, and, and obviously he's going to have a lot more talent. At Oregon and also be playing against more talent. So, uh, but I think you know when you look at it in an apples to apples comparison standpoint, there's there's a lot to like. Yeah, there is, and frankly, like his experience as a de- as a safeties coach, even without the defensive coordinator experience, I think would make this a good hire. But when you can bring in a guy who can bring so much to the defensive meeting room, right? Like just during game plan during the week, um, the 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 holistic understanding of defense. That he's going to bring to the room w- with the safeties, uh, I like. I think it's really, really important to have a guy that can really coach the coach the defense um, with the safeties because it's such an instinctive and and key and diagnose based position group. Like there, it's what you have to be. You want to have guys with the speed and the athleticism. And at times we talked about how Oregon hasn't had that, but you also need to have guys that are really, really smart um, because really. Most broken coverages come from somebody at the safety position doing the wrong thing, and so um, having well-coached safeties and having a guy leading that room that can help tie, kind of tie the front to the back, um, and and give and give those guys a really um, granular understanding of of defense, I think is going to be beneficial to the team. Yeah, and you have to think he's going to be able to add you know, and add an element to the recruiting room as well. Uh, you know, he's he's from Memphis, Tennessee, played safety at South Carolina uh, for four years, 2004 to 2007. Uh, and then he's he's had coaching stops at Arkansas State, Georgia, Georgia Tech as GA, then Central Arkansas, McNeese State, Tulane, Duke, and then back to Tulane. So his ability to relate to, connect to, have connections already in and, and be able to recruit players you know, in the Southeast, in Texas, in the South, like that, you got to th- think along with like Coach Lachlan and, and some of the others on staff, that's going to be another, another key on the recruiting trail for Oregon. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think uh, we don't know a lot, but I think at this point it's clear that he's a young up and coming coach, just looking at his track record and how quickly he's climbed. And the fact that um, Lanning, Lanning has a type with these coaching hires, right? Like these guys are all, like this is the all like in 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 basketball or soccer they've got like the U eighteen team like or 
like, oh yeah, he's on the U18 men's national team for for basketball. It's like, well, like everybody on on the staff is on the U35 team for college football coaching. Like the top guys in that in that age range, and I think it's it's really breeding this like it's fostering this innovative culture where young coaches want to come be here um, because ideas are allowed to, to kind of bud and grow. Um, and it's just a really good environment for smart young coaches. And so I, that's, that's the kind of environment you want to build. You want to be that place where coaches are willing to take a little bit, maybe of a step back in regards to responsibility in order to be around your smart coaches and, and advance their career through the brand of, of Oregon football. So uh, really, really happy with this hire looking forward to learning a lot more about him uh the the very little i do know it makes sense and frankly if at this point i i am almost implicitly trust landing with these hires yeah you know you mentioned the the under 35 thing and and coincidentally uh coincidentally enough or not you know the american football coaches association every year puts out a a 35 under 35 list of kind of you know 35 of the most up and coming coaches that are that are under age 35 every year and he was on that list a couple of years ago uh he's actually a little over 35 now but uh, he has made that list in the past so you know he's definitely someone who's seen in the industry as <laughs> as an up and coming coach so 100%. A lot to like, and obviously we'll see we'll see how that plays out over the course of the next season and beyond. Yeah, looking forward. To, and and the cool thing about this too is I think, every, and we might not have talked about it on the podcast, but there was a lot of rumblings behind the scenes that eventually when Tosh gets a head coaching opportunity, Powledge was the DC in waiting, um, and so losing him was kind of a bummer from that standpoint. And now you're adding another guy with defensive coordinator experience. It seems like they're. Lanning is looking to groom from within at that position. Um, and so being able to aggressively go out and hire and pay well um, a guy who's a really hot defensive coordinator at the G5 level to come to come be a safeties coach and, and learn and grow within your system um, to potentially take over as a defensive coordinator at a later date shows a lot of foresight um, on, on Lanning's behalf. Yeah, and you got to imagine – I mean, I would think Hampton is going to be a defensive coordinator at a power five school within, let's say, three to four years. And you know, whether that's know. Oregon or or somewhere else, probably less, right? Whether that's Oregon or somewhere else, he, he's on that trajectory. Yeah, I mean, I would be very surprised if he's not a DC somewhere in two years or less. Yeah. All right. Any more thoughts on Hampton or we want to move on to some portal talk? Let's move on to some portal talk. All right. I think since we we spoke on this last, uh, you know, on the thirty first of December, we've had a couple of of entries into the portal, or a couple of gets out of the portal for Oregon. I think only one departure, which was a little bit surprising, as we know, were two or two departures. Okay, as we know, yep. Oregon sits. Oh, that's right. We had another one uh, just just yesterday or today. But Oregon sits still close to you know eight or ten uh, players over the eighty five limit, um, or will when everybody gets here and gets enrolled. So. Um, there's still a lot of attrition that needs to come. I think a lot of people, including myself, were expecting per- perhaps more transfers out of the program this past week as classes resumed. And, and really, there's only been two. One was not a surprise, I guess, to many. One one was maybe a bit more of a surprise. Uh, so first off, you know, Cam McCormick, uh, tight end Cam McCormick, announced his transfer. And then since has announced that he's transferring to Miami to rejoin former coach uh, Mario, former head coach here and, and now head coach at Miami, Mario Cristobal and, and company down there. Um, I think Cam, to me, was a bit of a surprise, especially after Maliki 
Montevallo had had previously transferred out. I think a lot of people expected that you know there was room for Cam to be the clear tight end too in this in this offense, and you know be kind of the the primary inline blocking tight end. You know, with Ferguson being more of a pass catcher and, and jack of all trades tight end one. Um, so it's a little bit of a surprise to me, and it, and it kind of leaves the tight end room, you know, a little on the thinner side now with really just Ferguson, uh, Herbert, and then the freshman coming in, Sadiq. So, you know, thoughts on Cam transferring out and, and where that leaves us from a tight end position? Yeah, I'm sure this is one that um, they obviously had a clue it might happen, but this is one they would have preferred didn't happen. I, Cam McCormick, I think by Oregon fans even, and I think we talked about this on the episode with James here not that long ago, is one of the more underappreciated players um, of the last couple of years for Oregon. The things that he did behind behind the scenes in the locker room, type of guy he was for other players on the team. But then now that he's healthy, the blocker that he's been this year now, he's not a, he's not a super explosive dynamic pass catcher. I think he's lost a little bit with some of these injuries that he sustained. Um, athletically, but he's been probably the most consistent and and good inline blocker that we've had in the last couple of years. I mean, I, Hunter Campmoyer kind of similarly carved out a role for himself as an inline blocker and actually ended up floating around in the league for a little bit. I don't know what he, where he's at now, uh, but I think McCormick could kind of find himself doing something similar. Although I think he's a better athlete and and more of a threat as a vertical as a vertical receiver. So. Uh, all the best to him. Great dude. Dealt with a ton at Oregon. Obviously, we've made lots of jokes about the eighth and ninth year of eligibility he's returned, he's received. Uh, but it also could be one of those things where he's just ready for a change of scenery after seven years at Oregon. So, uh, yeah, all, for sure. All the best to him. It does put Oregon in kind of a weird spot in terms of tight end depth. Um, I'm I know they love Kenyon Sadiq, uh, and obviously Ferguson is tight end one. He's probably the best tight end one in the conference. But now, beyond Ferguson, it's there's a lot of inexperience and inconsistency. Um, and so I'll be interested to see if they stick with the guys that they have. Obviously, there's been some rumors that Mateo could flex over and play both ways a little bit. That wouldn't be the most surprising thing in the world, um, especially situationally. He is a really, really high-level tight end at the high school um, at that competition level. But uh, I don't think you would want to stunt his development as an edge rusher and a defensive player to play tight end for 30, 40 snaps a season or however many, I guess they, they could intend to use him more there. Uh, but it'll be really interesting to see how it all plays out. And I think uh, they're going to have to get creative. And I think that Oregon really is in a position now with some of the receiver depth that's been built up both through the transfer portal and prep recruiting to just play more 11 personnel. Uh, and, and that kind of goes in line with what Will Stein has done historically as a play caller. So, uh, yeah, tough to see Cam go. I would have loved to have him back. I think he would have played a really valuable role, maybe an underval- undervalued role by the fans on this team. But um totally understand a guy who's been at Oregon for so long wanting to go experience something else. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to see if there if there's any anybody coming out of the portal in the tight end position to shore up that room a little bit. I, I think to you, uh, like to your point, I think playing more 11 personnel seems to be, you know, on, in the cards and maybe it was in the cards anyway, but it certainly might, might have to be in the cards now. And, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing either, but I guess kind of leads us to, to the next departure, um, you know, wide receiver, 
Uh, Isaiah Brevard has elected to transfer out of Oregon. He was part of that 2021 class of receivers coming in with, with Troy Franklin and and Dante Thornton Jr. And obviously Dante and Brevard are now both both gone. Um, Troy is obviously wide receiver one at Oregon, uh, having a great second season this past year. And and obviously he'll be primed to be the, the number one guy this next year as well. So Brevard rub, never really seemed to crack the rotation here. Uh, you know, he never got much playing time outside of garbage time. Uh, I don't recall ever seeing him listed in the two deep kind of a, you know, was a, a special teams player and a scout team guy. Um, I'm sure he's looking for, for playing time opportunity and, and, you know, obviously you wish him all the luck and all the best in, in finding that. Yeah. And I, he's one, it wouldn't surprise to see him end up at like Akron with Moorhead. Uh, he was a Moorhead guy when he committed to Oregon. Um, but yeah, I mean, he never never really managed to to cut the cut the two deep or play meaningful snaps. But he does have a lot of physical talent, and so I think maybe going down a level could create a lot of opportunity for him to start making plays. Yeah, maybe he ends up being a, you know a guy like you know we've seen the last couple of years with Daywood Davis, right? Spent three years at Oregon, but you know I think Oregon bounced him around between corner and and wide receiver, you know, for a couple of years, and was a great team player here. Transferred over to Western Kentucky and had had two really strong seasons there at playing receiver. So maybe you'd see something like that for Brevard, and obviously you'd wish him wish him that kind of success. Yep, a hundred percent. And I think that wraps up all of the guys that transferred out to this point. Now there could be guys that are in the portal that just haven't announced on social media yet, and. Frankly, that's how you and I are compiling our list of guys coming and going is through social media confirmation. Um, yeah, and and we and I had heard I had have, have heard rumors of guys uh, being in the portal, but we're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna work in that kind of area where we're rumor mongering about guys who could or could not transfer. So we're gonna let those things come come out and come to the public eye first, and then we'll address them as they happen. But clearly, Oregon's still in a position where. Even even if they weren't to add uh, a Nicholas Harbor or a Roger Pleasant, they still need eight to nine more guys to take off. Yeah, yeah, and then that'll work itself out. And then some of that could end up happening in the second portal window. I think the deadline to enter the transfer portal in this current window it ends in three days, I believe, on the 18th. So if it doesn't happen now, it does it means those guys will will stick around for for spring term and spring ball, and then we'll. The second window will come around on the first of May, and and that's when we'll see we'll see more departures at that point in time. But um, let's get get to some additions because I think obviously these are players who are going to actually play a, a big role in Oregon's you know twenty twenty three season. Um, let's start with uh, Evan Williams, brother Bennett Williams, came over from Fresno State. Uh, he's a safety committed uh, to Oregon. You know, entered the portal, committed to Oregon a couple days later. Took a visit up here last weekend. Um, what do you, I know you, we've talked about him offline quite a bit. So tell me a little bit about like what you've seen in his film and what you like about Evan Williams, where you see him playing positionally as well in the Oregon defense. Evan Williams, um, big pickup in my opinion. It's kind of interesting. I, I hadn't watched him. I didn't know anything about him. Um, and then when he committed, I was like, oh, he's little brother of Bennett. This might be one of those, like doing a family a favor things, letting a guy come up and play at a higher level for a year. Um, and I, I shouldn't assume that anymore because that, that, that is the type of thing that maybe past staffs at Oregon have done, but that hasn't been something that landing staff has shown the propensity to do to like take plus ones and play the, play the politics game with family to take guys that they don't think are good players. And 
when I turned on the the film for Evan Williams, I was immediately really really impressed by his skill set. I mean, true deep safety. He's 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 a little bit more, not a little bit more. He's more fluid and more mobile than Bennett was. Uh, also plays more of a deep safety role. Uh, a lot of plays a lot of split safety or yeah split safety coverages. He can play over the top. He's got good speed. He's more of a true deep player than Bennett. Bennett was, whereas obviously Bennett played more as a star up in the box, almost like an undersized nickel linebacker um, because of how good of a tackler he was. And you see some of those similar traits with with Evan. Evan's a really good tackler. Um, he takes good angles to the ball. He plays with really good effort. Uh, but I just he's just more fluid. He's just more liquid in, in, in coverage. He's got, I think, better deep deep safety instincts, um, whether it's playing like 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 a cover two zone where he's playing half field coverage or if he's playing the single high um, with, with man coverage underneath, he just shows a lot of, he shows really good anticipation for route, um, for route schemes and, and his speed and his ability to get sideline to sideline and get over the top of things and his range, I think will be massive additions for Oregon at the safety position. Um, I, I think he's taking somebody's job. I don't know who it is, but I think he's coming in and starting at probably the field safety as as soon as he gets on campus. Well, I think that's a, certainly a position I think of need for Oregon. I think say, you know, upgrading the safety position is one. I think a lot of people recognized uh, something that this Oregon defense needs to do, whether through its internal improvements, you know, in transfers or, or younger players coming up. Like I think universally, you know, that position has been one that's been recognized where, Oregon needs to get better to achieve the goals that they have for this program, and and, and particularly in teams in speed, right? I think at the safety yeah. position, we've we've talked a lot about how we have a lot of box safeties and not a lot of uh, you know kind of field safeties, and and he fits more of that role, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting because he again, as the brother of Bennett, you're going to be you're just inherently going to be comparing the two, um, and I think a lot of people will see he's a Williams and just assume that he's more of a physical box player because. Bennett really excelled getting off blocks, defeating blocks, and making plays um, on the edge. But Evan is just a different player. He's just he's more fluid. He's got better flexibility in his hips. He can change directions and pattern match. Um, he plays the robber really well from the deep safety position. All things that I don't know that Bennett had the range to do. Um, and so it's it's definitely a different player, and I think he's a guy that kind of really perfectly fits into what Oregon needs and desires if they're going to be getting better at the safety position in 2023. Uh, that brings us to the next transfer in. So this one's coming over from Arizona State, class of 2019 linebacker, uh, Connor Sewell out of Saguaro, Saguaro? Saguaro. In, in Arizona. He's, he hasn't played a ton for Arizona State over the last few years. I think he redshirted. Uh, looked like he was a reserve linebacker for them this year. Um, his older brother was kind of their star linebacker the last few seasons. He's out of eligibility now, and and Connor has uh, just, you know, he's played some, and, and I know you've watched some of those snaps. So, you know, Oregon is, is in need of some depth at the linebacker position. Is Connor somebody you think that can provide that depth? Can he challenge for a starting spot? Like, where do you see him? Yeah. Um, again, another guy where when the, when the commitment initially happened – I was kind of confused. I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't know a whole lot about the guy. Um, and he, there, there's been this misconception that like he 
didn't play at all or was like a reserve player. Like he he did play and he actually played a significant role um at ASU, but he I don't know if it just was like a fit issue with the base front that they wanted to play, but he definitely was kind of pushed back into the, into the depth a little bit. Um, I, I have him down as playing 25% of snaps at linebacker, which isn't a huge number, but they also don't have anybody that really played outside of his older brother that played a substantial amount of reps. Um, Merlin Robertson and his, and his older brother played a lot. And also his older brother's only a redshirt junior this year. So he's got one more year of eligibility. Um, but I was really impressed with him. Like, frankly, I did not have high expectations for him. I assumed we were just taking a body for death purposes, but I think he's substantially more than that. I think his underlying skill set, again, fits what we want and what we're looking for. Like, Oregon clearly landing inherited a room of linebackers that did not fit the physical profile that they preferred. He inherited a bunch of big, old-school take-on Mike backers from the that would have been right at home in the um in the eighties and nineties, taking on fullbacks, get playing off blocks and making plays, but not guys that were really all that gifted running sideline to sideline. Um and one thing that Sewell really has a lot of is range. And so I think he would step in and immediately challenge to be our one of our better coverage linebackers just by watching the film available on him. I watched every snap that he took in twenty two and twenty twenty one. And yeah, I was, I'm not going to lie to you, and this isn't even a homer take. I was like very pleasantly surprised. Uh, I think he's a guy that will absolutely provide depth. I think he's a guy that's going to play pretty substantial snaps for us. Um, And I think he makes us better. He just, he does, he does a lot of the small things that you really like to see at the linebacker position well. Um, And I think that had they played a a more similar front to what we play, his role would have been substantially larger because. He's not really a Sam linebacker in an even front. Like he's just not long enough for that. Um, and with how good his brother was and how established Merlin Robertson was at, at inside linebacker, there wasn't a lot of snap extra snaps to go around there. Like uh, the guy behind Merlin Robinson played two percent of snaps. Um, so getting twenty five percent of snaps is it's not a ton, but it's it's a decent amount when you consider how good of a player his older brother is. Um, and so I'm really interested to see how this one looks when he gets on campus in the spring. He runs well. He's he's a very good key and diagnose linebacker. I don't think he's a draftable player athletically, but he's a guy that is going to do things right. You know what I mean? He's just going to be consistent and he's going to, he's going to key and diagnose the correct way. He's going to play blocks with good physicality and good mechanics um, and he's going to be a good tackler, and I think that he's going to he's going to surprise Oregon fans with his ability to flip and move and play in coverage because um, they played him a lot as an overhang, almost like a nickel player. And in in that role, um, he didn't show to be limited athletically. Gotcha. So with him added, and obviously you got Keith Brown, and. Um... <laughs> Jeff Bassa and yeah, Bassa. Sorry, and Jacob. So you kind of got those four, and then you got the two freshmen from last year, Taggart and Jackson. So and, and, and Mixon. Yep, and Mixon, and I and think Mixon coming in. Yeah, and I, I think that the 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 two transfers plus Brown and Bassa are going to make up the primary rotation, um, and it's going to give Taggart and Jackson opportunities to to earn their way into a rotation instead of having to be forced into it, even if they're not ready. 
um, which is exactly what you're looking for. Like I don't, I don't think that either Jacobs or Sowell are going to be guys that come in and look like high end NFL players right off the bat. Um, but they're going to be they're going to be guys that fit the system well, play really disciplined, good football within the system, and, and provide consistency. And that's something that we ha- we really didn't have a lot of consistency at linebacker this year. And so, uh, assuming that guys like Brown and Bassett can continue to develop and improve, adding that level of consistency into the room, um, I think, significantly raises the floor. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch how that how that room and the, the, the kind of the snaps and the depth chart plays out among those four players as well as the others over the course of spring and summer ball. And I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people this year have talked about, you know, safety play, corner play at times, coverage, obviously edge rushing, pass rush being, the, you know, one of the big weaknesses of the Oregon defense in 2022. But I think, you know, one of the, one of the positions that hasn't been talked about enough as an area that needed massive improvement, and you and I have talked about it some, but among the fan base in general, is, is the linebacker group. I, I think, you know, primarily from a consistency standpoint, I think at times there was good play there, you know, particularly with Sewell. Oh, people just assumed because Noah Sewell was a five-star and came and has played a lot of snaps that he was a good player. And I'm not saying he's a bad player because he's going to go get an opportunity to play in the NFL right now. But this year, he was not a great player. He was not even a consistent player. Um, and so I to, to assume that we can't improve our overall play at the linebacker position, like if, if you go turn on the tape, I, would, I think you'll find that it's pretty, that's a pretty disagreeable position to hold. Yeah, so I think that's an area, another area where the defense could see improvement overall through improvement, you know, incremental improvement at every level of the defense is going to lead to, you know, significant improvement across the whole, right, as we've talked about. So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the linebacker position, you know, evolve and play out over the course of time, Um, which brings us to our final, uh, the ninth transfer that Oregon's gotten so far this cycle, Um, and maybe there'll be more, but it, it feels like it's at least the first the first portal window is kind of winding down, um, but this is the big one. You know, probably the biggest transfer that, that Oregon has gotten in this cycle. You know, former five-star, number eight overall national player in the 2020 class, out of um, transferring over from South Carolina, and that's Edge Jordan Birch. Talk to us yeah. about Jordan. What the doctor ordered. Ordered. I mean, I think Bud Elliott said it well the other day on the Cover Three podcast. Like this is one where, if it hits, he's a first-round pick. Um, and that's not a guarantee. There's development that needs to be done here. I think, I think a big reason why he was motivated to make this move is because the way that that South Carolina had decided to move him or, or to use him within their system, um, they they got him all the way up to 275 pounds, and we're playing him on rundowns as a four eyes, trying to stack tackles and two gap, and then expecting him to have the have the gas left on on third down to slide out and rush from the edge and he created tons and tons and tons of pressure um one of the high one of the top pressure generators in all of college football this year uh but he wasn't finishing with lots of sacks and so why is that well i think the first thing is i think he needs to lose some weight i think he's too heavy i think that they bulked him up to play a role because they needed him to and not because it was the best thing for his development and his skill set as a player um so i think getting him down from 275 closer to 260 um, and allowing and leaning that frame back out and allowing him to recapture some of that explosiveness 
uh, will help. I think that rotating him with a deeper group of players, which we might not necessarily have, but I think we have enough guys um, to to give him some to to play him less snaps than he played at South Carolina, which was an absolute ton. Um, and I think that uh, letting him play from the outside, where um, at that lighter weight, his his natural um, size, speed, power uh, combination is truly unique. And I think with some 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 use of hands coaching and some technical development during the off season, this is a guy that could blow up and be like a re- a shock to some, but to people who actually pay attention. Um, really a guy coming into his own and, and kind of capturing all of this talent that he has. Yeah, and obviously that's a major need for Oregon. You know, they, they, generating pressure off the edge was was definitely not a strength of the team this year uh, post-KT. And, um, you know, they got it at times from a couple of guys like a DJ, but certainly not consistently. And if Birch can come in, shed some weight, you know, do the things you're talking about, playing playing more at his his most natural position, and and make the improvements he needs to make, get the coaching he needs to he needs to get. Like that could be a real difference maker for the Oregon defense, and and be a big part of again why if the Oregon defense takes a major step forward this year, like many of us hope, it's going to be because of improvement at every level, and and that and that could come from him, right? It also, like you said before, gives it gives a guy like Dorless the opportunity to be rushing from the interior where he, he was really good at in previous seasons instead of as an, as an exterior rusher. Like I think he was forced to, uh, into doing by necessity uh, too much this year, kind of playing him out of position too. Yeah. So for context, Jordan Birch played 717 snaps this year. The only two guys on the team that played more snaps than him were Spencer Rattler, the starting quarterback um, well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not even gonna. I'm gonna ignore the the offense. The only two guys on the defense that played more snaps than him were one of the starting corners and one of the starting safeties. Everybody else was, I mean, in the, when you compare him to front seven players, there wasn't anybody within a hundred snaps of him. So he was always on the field, and so clearly he provides value even at a heavier weight, um, just due to the fact that he's a really dominant run defender and. And he sets a really strong edge. Like that's one thing. Like even if Jordan Birch doesn't hit, like if he doesn't lose weight and come in and and really develop as a pass rusher and and kind of and, and develop those finer, uh, minute level skills that are going to translate pressures into sacks, he instantly upgrades our ability to set the edge and play the run defensively. Um, like DJ was really inconsistent at this. There was a lot of times this year where. DJ would just take an inside move randomly on second down, uh, not play with his hands, dip a shoulder, and give up the edge, and that's a big play. Um, and and we we as as well as Funo played down the stretch earlier in the season, his consistency setting the edge wasn't as strong, and really we didn't have anybody else besides those two that could play. Um, like I watched the the tail end of the Oregon State game where they're just running the ball down our throat, and we're really soft on the edge, and no matter what. With Birch on the field, we're going to be substantially better uh, against the run. We're going to be a lot stronger on the edge, and I and I really do think that there's substantial upside here from a pass rush standpoint. Well, and that's certainly good to hear and good to see. And obviously, we'll watch that play out as well over the course of spring and summer and into fall. Uh, anything more you want to talk about on Birch? 
<laughs> no, not really. I mean, I just, again, I think if you read the message boards and you ask South Carolina fans are going to say, oh, he, he, he was a bust, he didn't play, blah, blah, blah. It's like really like he played more snaps than literally anybody on your defense except for one corner and one safety. And again, like just for context, this is the snap numbers for the other defensive ends at, at South Carolina. Birch played 717. Edmund played 672. Straken played 95. Thomas played 94. Johnson played 148. Dawkins played 29. And Fitton played 8. So basically, it was two guys playing all the snaps. Um, yeah. And, and, and even then, Birch had almost 100 more snaps than the next guy. And he was playing, again, inside in the SEC on a not very good South Carolina team that teams wanted to run on. And so um, I... I really think that his best football is in front of him and it's just going to be a matter of how good does how good does Jordan Birch want to be because he he's got a lot of say in this just given his natural athletic toolkit and, and Oregon is certainly not going to ask him to play inside with the plethora of players they have you know at that position I mean they're stacked with guys upon guys upon guys to play the interior so they're not going to ask that of him and then also obviously he can be playing in the Pac-10 against Pac-12 against very different levels of of uh, offensive line uh, talent than that he's seen week in and week out on SEC. And I think oh, yeah. I think I read that he had the second most pressures in the entire SEC even yeah. this year, even with all that. So and, and he did play against very good tackles on a week to week basis. Um, like I was watching him against Tennessee, and it's like that right tackle is a. I, I have a feeling he's going to get his name called somewhat early uh, in April here. So. Uh, there, there's a, there's certainly a higher baseline talent level in the front on both sides of the ball in that conference. And I think that losing weight, um, again, just having an off season of, of good development rushing and really focusing on rushing from the outside, uh, with, with, with a better body could, could do wonders for him. Um, obviously there's some projection involved there, but even if you remove the projection, you're getting a damn good run defender on the edge who's really going to make you strong there so all right shall we move on to some listener questions absolutely let's get into it all right yeah the first one is a perfect segue uh coming out of this is, is from dan Lanning, king of the north what position groups do we need to hit the port in do we hit the portal for as of now so obviously we've added a corner we've added a safety we've added an edge rusher we've added a couple of a linebacker, an offensive lineman. Uh, is there any groups that we still need to get out of the portal? Um, I'd be interested to hear your opinion. To me, if if there's a good enough tight end to make it worth your time, possibly a tight end. Um, if, a, if a really explosive edge rusher hits the portal, you'll always have room for someone like that. Um, but otherwise, I don't. I think they're done. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, especially in this first window. I, I think the same. I mean, obviously, if a, if a talent that is too good to pass up a, at any position comes available, corner, safety, tight end, you know, heck, even receiver, right? Like you're going to take a guy like that who can help your team. But I, not, I don't think you're necessarily looking for any particular position anymore. I think much like last season, Dan and the staff had a plan, you know, and have really attacked it very well, right? I mean, they've added, they've added probable impact players at every position where they needed to in the portal. And and that's really all you can ask for. And and also guys who are playing coming over for the most part from power five programs or or really good group of five programs. So I, I I'm with you. I think in the second window, then maybe there'll be maybe we'll see, right? Because things will happen in spring. More guys might transfer out, you know, more guys might become available that aren't available now. And and there may be some more 
more reason to go after a certain position in the spring or in the spring transfer window. But I think in this window, I think we're probably done. Yeah, I agree. I, I just, I think they've addressed all their needs and even at some positions, I don't, I think they address needs that they didn't really have just because there was good players. Um, and so I think the roster is in a very healthy position right now. I mean, of course there's players you'd like to add in the prep ranks here down the stretch, but even if you didn't add anybody else, I think going into next year, um, once you get down to 85, you feel really good about what you have. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this one comes from Mark. The lack of depth at linebacker has been apparent for the past several years, and the current class sits at just two, Mixon and Transfer Jacobs. What is the driver of this low number, and do you see linebacker being a position of focus in the transfer portal? I think this question was asked before Suell, or sorry, Soel transferred over, so it, it may be a little redundant now, but um, I'll also say, yeah, I think uh, obviously it, it is a position of focus. We got a guy out of the portal who was likely in the rotation. I don't see us adding another one, um, but I do think it's a critically important position for Dan and the company to address in the 2024 uh, high school class. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this was a particularly good linebacker class for preps in 2023, um, especially once you got past the top couple guys and how most of those guys committed to Georgia and went to Georgia. Um, but I do like Mixon. I think he's a good player. I, I think that they knew that they were going to be able to get some guys in the portal that were better than what they were going to be able to find in prep, um, especially with next year being a really strong linebacker class. Oregon's in a really good spot for a couple top targets that are like substantial upgrades to the profile for us. Um, so I, I, I think that they were very content just waiting and going to the portal in this class. And I think they got two really good players in, in Jacobs and Sowell. And again, I know that a lot of people, a lot of Oregon fans are going to be like, well, Sowell, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot on Sowell. I've watched everything that there is. And I feel, I see exactly why the staff liked him enough to take him. Um, and I think that there's a, I think there's an underlying skill set there that's going to allow us to be four deep at linebacker with Bassa, Brown, Jacobs, and Sowell. And I think that all four of those guys are going to play a ton of snaps. All right, moving on. This question comes from George Steenkolk. The biggest gaps on D this year were secondary and pressuring the quarterback. Which transfer or prep signings are you most excited about to improve this aspect of play next year? Uh, I guess we'll start with Edge, and we kind of talked, obviously, about Birch. is probably the one I'm most excited about, although there's plenty of others to, to hope for helping out in the, in the, second, in the Edge play as well. Kimi, you want to jump at that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll just name, because we took so many guys at both spots, I'll, I'll name two guys at each. Um, I, I, think that, I think that all the transfer guys are going to play. So Jackson and Williams, they're going to play. They're going to play substantial roles. Um, I'm interested to see um, kind of who ends up sliding in at the nickel spot. I think that's like the biggest question mark going into the spring. Um, but in terms of prep players, high school players coming in, I think... Uh, I think Dalen Austin is a guy that's going to find his way onto the field at the cornerback position. Maybe not in a really prominent role, probably more like what Jaleel Florence played this year. Um, and I think that Tyler Turner is a guy that's going to find his way onto the field in a pretty, in a, in probably a more prominent role um, just because he's already on campus. He was practicing with the team for the bowl game. Um, he's, he's a really physically developed kid. Who's going to be here for, basically a, a full cycle before fall camp even starts. Um, and then on the, on the rush, 
I'd probably go Blake Purchase because I think he's the best edge rusher in the group. Uh, and I think he's a guy that has some good vertical pop and has, and has a fairly developed body and skill set that's going to allow him to see the field. And I think Amari Washington is another player um, that he's going to play more on the interior that is going to be athletically just different than the guys we have and is going to offer a lot of substantial twitch and burst uh, without compromising size that, that is going <clears> to, <throat> I think he'll find a role as an interior rusher at third down packages. Yeah, the only other name I might add to this is is obviously Mateo. You know, you'd, you'd like to see someone that maybe could get on the field and help a little bit here and there at the edge position, but uh, you know, certainly wouldn't anticipate that happening at a level higher than than Birch for sure, and and probably not even higher than Purchase. But you know, someone to keep an eye on for sure. Well, and and here's the deal: is Mateo has the advantage of being here for spring, and I'm definitely not counting out Mateo because uh, I I do like athletically he is really really impressive and. The, I was able to track down some 2022 film of him and some full games, um, some Trinity League film, and because there wasn't ever a huddle posted of his senior stuff, and I do think he helps us this year. But I think those are the, the two guys. If you asked me to pick two from the pass rush, I think it's going to be Purchase in Washington. All right, let's move on. Next question. This is a good one. I like this one from Act the Duck. Um what needs to happen in each of the three phases to go from a Holiday Bowl winner to a true playoff contender? Okay. Um, I think our, our just our straight drop back, offensively, I think it's pretty straightforward. We're really, really good at everything already. Um, maintaining the run game, but improving the straight drop back game. And I think a part of that is improving the receiver room outside of Franklin. And I think that they address that. I think bringing in Holden, bringing in Johnson and then also bringing in Dickey and Cozart um, to go with a group of young receivers uh, like, like Kyler Casper coming off a red shirt is going to be the injection of juice needed to improve our drop back game. Um, and then special teams wise, we, we got to get better at covering kicks and we got to, we got to do better at punting. Um, and then defensively, I mean, improving the pass rush, but I, I think we need holistic improvement defensively. We need to get better at all three levels. Um, and I think that we have the pieces to do that now. Um, and I think that also defense is the side of the ball where you're going to see a larger jump from year one to year two because uh, offensively you, you see much quicker turnarounds traditionally. Um, so I'm I'm really interested to see now with a roster that is primarily landing in his, his crew's guys what this defense looks like in year two and what kind of improvement and ground can be made. Yeah, I think you nailed the special teams. I think I'll just on offense, I'll add red zone. Um, I think, I think I agree with you completely on the long game on the passing going to drop back passing game, but I think specifically, you know, red zone and, and kind of the deep red zone or something you'd like to see improvement at off offensively to get to that next level and on defensive side of the ball yeah it's holistic of course um you know if you want to look at one metric you know i think third down getting off the field on third down at a more consistent level could be it's part of the holistic improvement right but it's a it's a it's a a number you can look at to see if that's happening yeah i agree Our yeah, all right. Let's move on to some more. These are questions from our Scoop Deck listeners. So we'll go start with uh, W Hauser 37. 
based on what we currently have on defense, what do you feel like is a realistic expectation to have on the defensive improvement and performance next season? I think I think the expectation should be that you're a top thirty defense and and the advanced metrics, whether it's F plus, S P plus, FEI. Um again, we were I think we ended up in the nineties this year. I haven't looked at our final where we've um I think I think F F plus we were at fifty something, fifty eight or sixty four oh, yeah. or something. So, like yeah, that. so yeah, exactly. Going from fifty eight to top thirty, I think, is a pretty realistic expectation because defensively for Oregon, like it's not necessarily about like you had some talent last year, but the problem was is that you had some real weak links too. And I think like adding players like Kyrie Jackson, adding players like Evan Evan Williams um, and Justin Jacobs and so all, I think what's going to end up happening is you're going to see that the floor, the bottom the bottom line talent that sees the field for Oregon is going to be better than it was a year ago. Um, and I think that's ultimately going to end up in the defense as a unit improving statistically uh, pretty substantially. All right. Leaderboard asks, does the offense look virtually the same next season with Stein and Bo? Can next year's O-line give a similar protection to 2022? How will losing Forsyth affect Bo, if at all? Forsyth is actually the one that I'm most interested to see, like, replaced. Um, because I think he has the most irreplaceable skill set just based on a leadership and foundational standpoint. Like, he was, he was very key developmentally to that whole room i mean he was a leader he, he led by example um extremely hard like legendary legendarily hard worker like the stories that i've heard about alex forsyth as a as a worker and a teammate um are really really impressive and, and it's tough to replace that and so uh, whether it's jpj or somebody else stepping up into that role um it's going to be really important that we have consistency at the at the center position like we've had with Forsyth. Um at tackle, I I don't see how we don't improve in pass pro. Um just Cornelius outright is a better pass pro player than uh Sala and Bass is Bass was a very dominant run blocker but at times was inconsistent in pass pro and I think that that's where Connerly's just natural athletic talent um is gonna make him really good right off the bat. Uh well I don't know if we're gonna be able to run the ball quite as well. I but I think that with the additions we've made in the receiver room, um Stein's gonna want to play more eleven personnel and I think we're gonna push the ball vertically a hell of a lot more, which should open things up um and relieve pressure for a, an offensive line that's gonna be a little bit in transition early in the season. Yeah, I I would agree with all that. I think I don't think we'll see you know a tremendous. And we've talked about this before when we did the Stein hiring pod. I I think the offense is going to look primarily you know the same, maybe a little more eleven, maybe maybe a little more passing uh, for the reasons we've talked about previously on on that episode. So uh, I don't expect holistic changes there. You know we'll see some different packages, we'll see some different things, but we would have seen that under under year two of Kenny too. So. Um, We'll move on to the next question. Duckfan7, is the recruiting ceiling under landing higher, lower, or the same as it was under Crystal Ball? Along the same lines, is this year's class a representation of the floor or the expectation? Um, I think that the, the ceiling under both coaches is similar. I do think that 
I think it might be a little higher with Lanning actually. Um, I think I just defensively we re we're going to recruit a lot better, and I think that Oregon as a brand is always going to attract the offensive guys. Um, and so yeah, I think I think because of Lanning being more of a defensive coach, I think it might improve our ability to recruit that side of the ball, um, especially out of region, which is where we really need to go to improve. Um, so yeah, I think I think our ceiling might be a little better, but I think it's pretty close. I mean, I think both guys are elite recruiters, um, and I think this year should be an expectation. I I don't see us falling off. I think, in fact, like based off early reports, early commitments, I wouldn't be surprised if twenty four is our best class ever, um, just based on the interest level of some of our top targets, uh, some of the guys that we're in on nationally. I I think that next year could just be a phenomenal class. So. Um, I don't anticipate that we're going to drop off in recruiting uh, in 2024. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I think that the ceiling is is certainly not lower than it was in a crystal ball. It might be slightly higher, but you know, you're splitting hairs to a degree. And I agree with you. I think there's no reason to think this. You know, we shouldn't be able to recruit at least at the same level every year, if not, if not even maybe you know slightly better, maybe at certain positions as well, right? Uh, so I think there's. You, know, you look at offensive line recruiting our, our high school recruiting there um you know from a ranking standpoint rating standpoint wasn't wasn't exceptional this year i think we shot for some big targets that are way out of region and and fell short on pretty much all of them um and the west coast talent really wasn't good in the 23 class it's better in the 24 class along the offensive line i think we have some we have a commitment there already we're in pretty high on Afua out of Washington. We're in pretty high on Baker out of Southern California, right? So the prep recruiting at that position alone could improve, you know, substantially from a rankings perspective. Uh, and then obviously continue to hit at the other positions that we've been hitting at. So I, I, I don't see any reason why the recruiting would get, would get worse. I mean, this should be the floor or at least the annual expectation uh, under Lanning for sure. All right. Um, Moving on to the next question. Could QB11 provide bowl game evals on young guys who are expected to contribute next year? I'm specifically thinking linebacker and secondary young guys who played. I think we might have touched on this a little bit in the review episode we did with Justin, but, I mean, Keith Brown comes to mind as a young linebacker who played a lot of snaps that game. Yeah. Uh, the I still don't have it, – it, they're, they're lagging a little bit behind on getting – the um the system I used to get all twenty two is lagging a little bit behind on on getting bowl game film up. So as soon as that's up I'll be able to dive into it more. Currently it's not there, so I don't have access to it. Um and I don't I haven't rewatched it from a TV angle standpoint because I figured I'd just save it and watch it when I get the good film. Um so yeah, I would love to do that at some point, maybe talk about some of these younger guys that played more prominent roles in that game, but yeah, I think like we talked about in the other pod, uh, Keith Brown is somebody that really stands out to me as a young guy who played a substantial role, maybe bigger than uh, what was normal for him in 2022, uh, and really played well. Um, and I think flashed ability to even improve. So um, I'm really excited about Keith Brown. All right. Uh, this one comes from Count Quackula. Great name. Understanding things are not set in stone yet with the roster. What is your preliminary assessment of the floor and ceiling for the 2023 football season? And what are you looking for in weeks and months ahead for the Ducks to reach the high end of that range? Uh, I'll start. I mean, I think the floor is, it's got to be nine and three again, which I, I know would be disappointing. 
um, just like it was mildly disappointing this year. Um, but I, I can't see any scenario where you're under that. I think the ceiling is, you know, 11 to 1, you know, 12 and 0. I mean, 12 and 0. It always sounds silly saying 12 and 0. Like it just does. Like, you know, that never happens. There's always a slip up somewhere. Uh, but if you look at the games on paper, you know, Oregon will probably be favored in, you know, 11, maybe even all 12 of their games this year. So it's not, I mean, it's crazy, but it's not crazy at the same time. I'd say 11 to 1. Let's just say that. Um, I think to reach that, you're going to have to see those defense improvements we've been talking about. I mean, the offense is going to have to perform at a similar level, and the defense is going to have to have, you know, significant improvements if you want to be 11 and 1. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think. Nine and three is probably a pretty hard hard floor, especially like you're going from playing Georgia and Atlanta to Texas Tech and Lubbock. Um and I, I don't mean that to be disrespectful to Tech, but Georgia, as we saw when they played TCU last week, was different than everybody else. Um so yeah, I, I think that the schedule uh out of conference gets easier. I think that the schedule in conference might get a little bit more challenging, um, adding USC to the fray. And you have some, you have a tough road game in Seattle, but uh, I, I, my expectation is ten or eleven wins. Frankly, with this team, with the experience, with the talent returning, and then with an improved defense, there's no reason um, that Oregon shouldn't win ten plus games. Yeah, I, I think anything less than ten, anything less than being in the Pac-12 title game is a disappointment, just like it was this year. So uh, that's kind of where I stand. Um, kind of along those lines, any concern over the age of a roster next year versus other Pac-12 team or Pac-12 teams? I haven't done the work, but processing a ton of upperclassmen to bring in freshmen lowers our age. I think we have four or five freshmen that contribute next year at best. Right now, 65% of the roster is underclassmen. I mean, um, that's always going to be the case, right? Like yeah. with modern roster management, you're always going to have more underclassmen than upperclassmen. Um, but you also did add nine transfers, and they're all upperclassmen, and they're all going to play substantial roles. So, um, and and you did return a really like, just look at the defensive line room. Like you returned Popo, you returned Dorless, you returned Keon Ware Hudson, you report you returned Casey Rogers, you returned Keanu Williams, um, you returned Taki Taimani, like like you you guys like Mace Funa. Like there there is a lot of experience on this team coming back. I think there's a really well established group of leaders. Um, I think that there's some spots where you might be a little younger, but overall, I'm not at all concerned with the youth on this team. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I, it's it's what it's going to be every year. This is what actually is is healthy roster management. So I, we're going to be fine. We're it's not, we're not going to we're not going to be at a disadvantage because of youth. Because the guys that are going to be making up the majority of our rotation are are going to be guys with a lot of experience, and then you're going to be playing youth in talented youth in those you know kind of backup yeah. roles. We're not in like a that. position at any. We're we we are not in a spot at any position where we are going to be forced to play a freshman that's not ready to play. They're going to have to earn their way into the field, um, which means that the staff's done a good job of addressing needs in the transfer portal and of developing the existing roster. Right where we don't have to pencil guys in to be starters or to be too deep players. And if they are starters or too deep players, it's because they hit, right? That means they're damn good players. So. Yeah. All right. We've got two more questions and then we'll call it a night. Uh, first one from masher 25. What is one, who is one player that redshirted on offense and one player that redshirted on defense that you think can have an impact next season. I'll start on defense with this one. 
Um, I'm wondering about a guy like Kamari Terrell. I think he read or he didn't redshirt, did he? He's probably mm-hmm. uh, ineligible. No, he didn't. He didn't. Dang it. All right, I got to take him off. Um, hmm. Where am I going to go then, QB? Uh, what about a guy like Ben Roberts, maybe? Yeah, he kind of stole that one off the tip of my tongue. I, I think that what the the film that I have watched of our return or young guys that redshirted, I think Ben Roberts is going to be a really good player, which is kind of like we don't have a need for him next year because we are so deep on the interior defensive line. But like he's really strong. He was really strong this year, and he showed better range um, than you would expect from a true freshman interior defensive lineman. And so I think that with a full off season, because if I recall, I don't think he was an early enrollee. I think he was a summer guy. Yeah, correct. So with a full off season and in, in, in the weight room, like how like how strong is he going to be, and and how much more is he going to develop, like in terms of his ability to play up and down the line? I I don't know. I think that he could be a sleeper. Um, and then like the obvious one, I think is a guy like Jaleel Florence. Um. I don't know if he redshirted. I don't think he redshirted either. Yeah. Yeah, but he's going to play, and he's going to play a lot. Um, and I think Kamari Terrell. I think those are the three guys defensively that I I would mark down as guys I expect to play big roles next year that were part of that 2021 class. Yeah, it's a little harder to find on offense. I mean, maybe a guy like Kyler Casper. I'm pretty sure he redshirted. Obviously, he didn't play a lot of snaps either way. So I think we'll call him eligible. Um, he's a guy that you could see maybe taking a step on offense, maybe an offensive lineman, um, you know, uh, you know, one of the younger offensive linemen that didn't play a lot last year, you know, it's a guy that might be able to break into the rotation. It doesn't seem like they would based on, you know, the returners and transfers we have on the offensive line, but someone that any of them would be a starter necessarily, but you know, you never know what happens injury wise. And, and maybe, you know, someone breaks into the, to the two deep that we weren't expecting yeah. along, the, along the line. Connerly didn't redshirt. He's obviously going to play a big role. I think of redshirt guys, Casper could be. I think uh, Kawika Rogers is a guy to keep an eye on, though. Um, there was so many good reports about him early in camp last year, and then he got a little banged up during the season, uh, and it limited his ability to get practice reps and, and to contribute in garbage time. But I, I think that he's a guy as a swing player who could probably play a little guard and a little tackle um, might be, might prove to be very valuable. And so um, track his development this off season. I think he's a guy that ends up being in the two deep somewhere. All right. We will wrap it up with Tosh Spice. And this question is specifically for you, Andrew. He wants to know your opinion on sweaters. Sweaters. Um, yeah. I'm a big sweater guy. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I'm guessing not so much anymore. No, I mean, it's been pretty chilly down here. It's been in like the 60s and high 50s the last couple days. Um, <laughs> the 60s is chilly? But like a good turtleneck sweater, I think can be quite the statement if executed properly. Um, so people I, named Andrew like turtlenecks. Yeah, I like, I don't, I don't know. I just think that it doesn't even have to be a turtleneck to be a sweater, but I do enjoy a good sweater. Um, I think I think that there is a place in this world for a, a good business casual sweater, right? Like a nice material, just a nice clean sweater that gives you a lot of utility. Whether if you're a churchgoer, you can wear it to church. 
um, in a lot of business environments. I think it's totally acceptable. Um, and it's like kind of a nice mix between like dressier and uh, like, like if you were going to meet your in-laws or something, or if you're going out on a date, I think a, a well-executed sweater, I think would pass in a lot of different environments. So uh, the, the utilitarian in me really likes sweaters. I don't think I own any sweaters anymore. There was a time where I did wear sweaters to work or quite a bit, like you were talking about, kind of back in the day before you were in the workforce, Andrew, when like you, the, the, the overall, you know, kind of work dress code was a little, a little more in the office was a little more than it is nowadays. And uh, I, there was a time where I'd wear a lot of sweaters in the winter, but I, I wear t-shirts 365 days a year, so a sweater would be too hot for me. I I, I couldn't wear right. a sweater. So I need to I need to pose a question to you. So oh, okay, and th- this yeah. actually is pertinent to Oregon and Oregon recruiting and and fashion since we're on fashion right now. How do we feel about hoodies and sport coats together? I, yes, because initially I was against. How does it. that even work? The hood sticking out of the back of the sport sport coat. Yes, and 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 I'm not going to lie to you. Like my my boss executed it to perfection on Friday, and I've my my eyes have been opened, and like people were making fun of Tosh for rocking the hoodie sport coat combo, and I don't think he executed it well, but I think Tosh's problem was more the fit of the hoodie and the sport coat, and and the fit of the jeans, um, but. I think when done right with, again, it has to be a high end looking hoodie. It can't just be like your yeah. like run of the mill, cheap Nike hoodie that you got for $20 at Fred Meyer. Like it has to be like a nice material um, that just looks a little bit more high end, but I think, I think it can work. I just, the, the, what I'm picturing in this is the amount of sweat that I would that would pour off of me if I tried to wear a hoodie and a sport coat at the same time. Like the, <laughs> the, the literal temperature internally that my body would be at in that scenario is, is unfathomably like uncomfortable. It's something. It is something. I, I'm not saying your boss didn't pull it off. And, and the fact that he did it in Arizona, like I'm blown away, but um, well, you gotta, you, your body does adjust. Like, like I wore, you know, I like today, for instance, like I wore like a, a Columbia, like one of those like really well insulated Columbia winter jackets because it was freaking cold. And it was like, let me look at the forecast. I, I don't know how cold it actually was, but for here it was cold. Yeah, it was 55 degrees today. BS. What's the best part about going to Hawaii is it doesn't matter how long I go for. I can carry on my suitcase. I don't like, need, it's like all shorts and t-shirts. Like it doesn't take up space. I'm looking at our forecast down here and this is totally off topic and no one cares, but whatever. Like the high over the next 10 days is 61. Like what in the world is happening? Yeah. I don't know. Global cooling. I don't know. Those climate it, change. It's going to be crazy. And we have a 90% chance of rain tomorrow and it's going to be overcast all day. If it was 91, I'm sorry, 61 degrees and raining, I would be wearing shorts and a t-shirt. I'm looking at your forecast right now. I think you're going to have don't, plenty of opportunities. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> plenty of opportunities to get rained on here in the near future. But with that all being said, um, again, appreciate everyone's patience through the hiatus. Like, again, you guys reaching out and asking us where the heck the episode is. Like, one, unbelievably flattering that you care. And two, 
Um, I I just again would like to apologize because we we don't plan um, to have a hiatus like that again. Uh, it just kind of ended up working out that way. We were all so busy, tough to nail down a time and it, with travel and vacations and work and all that stuff. And so uh, we just appreciate your guys' flexibility and support, and uh, we want to continue to put the show out. And so don't worry, it's not going anywhere. But uh, once again, thank you. Um, make sure to follow the podcast, subscribe to Scoop Duck, um, follow us all on Twitter if you guys ever have questions, uh, comments, concerns about the podcast or anything from the podcast. Feel free to just DM Doug or I. I mean, both of our DMs are open. Uh, we're both pretty good about checking them and getting back to people. So um, always great to to connect with you guys on a more like individual level. So uh, with that said, everybody have a wonderful Monday. And we will talk to you guys in the next week.